listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. Sitting there listening up here, and it sounds like we believe this morning. Amen? Wow, man, so exciting to, to come today in such a, to me, just an atmosphere of enthusiasm. Uh, for who our Savior is. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians 3, uh, starting in verse 18. Uh, we're going to go through 4, 6 today. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Colossians. I hope that uh, God is using it in your life uh, in many ways. Uh, you know, chapter 1 is such an amazing um, chapter because it talks about who Jesus is, that he is the creator of all things, and he is the sustainer of all things, and all things consist of him, by him, for him, through him. And so Paul is pointing to Jesus, and then you get to chapter 2, and it starts talking about how Jesus is better than philosophy. Jesus is better than legalism. We should get a big amen there. Um, and Jesus is better. And then you get to 3, and he's just pointing, going, because of who he is, just keep looking at him. Do not take your eyes off of him. And today we're going to jump into, so now how does this look? Now that he is who we claimed he is and he's better than everything, uh, how does that affect our lives? And so we're really talking about the Christian life and how that as believers we should be set apart. Uh, we should look different uh, than the world. In 1 Peter 2.9 uh, I think is the verse that you launch from when you start thinking about being set apart. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That screams set apart. Uh, man, it just the, the whole verse should excite us as believers in why and who we are and what we get to do. And then Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, theologian and preacher, says this, A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern as the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ, set apart. And that should be displayed in our homes. Uh, it should be displayed outside of our homes in our daily life. And we should be marked by these things. And that's what we're going to look at today. So in verse, is kind of two sections. One, the Christian example. Uh, the second part's the Christian life. So I'm going to read uh, verses 18 through 4-1. And we'll pick up the last part uh, there. So read with me uh, this morning. Verse 18. Uh, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children... Obey your parents in all things. Or underline that one. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. God, we love you today, and thank you that you are uh, who you claim to be. Lord, in the Gospels, and today, Lord, you are sitting uh, high and lifted up, uh, Lord, uh, at the throne. And God, we, as people, as your children, get to come before you in praise and worship. And so, God, I pray that uh, up to this point, everything that's been done uh, this morning has been pleasing to you. And God, as we carry on just uh, in your word, that your word, uh, Lord, will go out, as it says, sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, that it'll do exactly what it's, what it's meant to do. Father, we pray that you'll work in a, us as believers. Uh, God, any of these things that we may fall short in, God, that you would convict our hearts today through the Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, we would repent 
uh, God, confess our, our sins, Lord, because we know you're faithful and just to forgive us. And God, if there is somebody in here today that is lost, Lord, and on their way to a really place, a real place called hell, God, I pray that today be the day of salvation for them. Uh, Lord, we do this, Lord, so they can hear the gospel, God, and, and be saved. Lord, we love you and thank you ahead of time what you're about to do. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first part is the Christian example. And if you look in verse 18, it's kind of two parts to each one of these verses. And, and so the first part is the fulfilled wife. Uh, notice what it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Now, we are talking here about biblical living. Not what the world says, but what God's Word says. It's a difference. Our worldview comes from Scripture. Uh, the way we handle our lives, the way we handle our affairs is based on what the Bible says. So I just want to point that out because everything that God does is done indecently and in order. Uh, there is no chaos uh, with God. But this very important uh, topic has definitely been misrepresented and disrupted. Uh, I hear people on both sides of this argument about wives submit to your own husbands. I hear men sometimes, and I cringe when men say this, well, they, they say things like, the Bible says that I'm in charge and you'll do what I say. If you're going to do what it says, you're going to die for her. That's what it says. Women sometimes say things like this, and, and try to, like, women who are, Strong, independent women say, ain't no man going to lord over me. Says things, I've heard women say this, ain't no man, especially my husband, going to tell me what to do. I didn't hear as much that time. <laughs> but here's the thing, both are unbiblical views of God's design. Um, and one of many reasons why so many marriages fail uh, the Bible is the authority on marriage. It's not the, the, tr the latest TV show, uh, Dr. Phil, Oprah, whoever's out these days. I don't really watch that stuff. It's not the latest trend. Or I guess these days it's not TV shows as much as it is Instagram influencers. Uh, they all have their opinion. But verse 18 is very simple. Two phrases. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Why? Because it is fitting or pleasing to the Lord. Uh, and just a side note, wife in the Greek means woman, husband in the Greek means man. Can't turn that around, that's what it means. I just want to put that out there as we go on forward. Uh, submit to your own husbands. And listen, this is not a word of slavery or a subjugation. It's actually a military term that means to a rank in order, uh, or to rank in order. So it's like in the military, you have a private and you have a colonel. One is not any more important in their duties as the other one. They just have a different rank. Uh, both are very important to our uh, security of our country. And biblical submission is never a chauvinistic idea that devalues women. That's not what it, what it means. So when the Bible says, Wife, submit yourself to your own husbands, it's God's design for marriage. Why should you do it? Well, he says it. Very simple. It is fitting in the Lord. It literally means to be right. So as, as Christian wives in the room, do you want to be right with the Lord? Amen? I'm going to say it again. Ask it. Women, Christian wives, do you want to be right with the Lord? Okay. <laughs> Do you want to please the Lord? Amen. That's a given. Here it is. It's a God-given position. It's what the Bible says. Your husband and my wife will amen a loud and a lot on this. Your husband will make a mess a lot of times. And in your thinking, you may go, he does not deserve to lead me. Or he is even incompetent of leading. But God deserves your obedience because it's his design and ultimately you are submitting to the authority of the Godhead. 
because that is how he designed it. Submission is designed for you to help your husbands and to be able to accomplish more things together. Um, Embrace the role given by the Lord, but don't be afraid to give insight and wisdom and perspective. I remember whenever God was calling, I say us because she's on the journey with me, with our family, when God was calling me to go to seminary, uh, it was a toss-up between two places. We were looking at Southwestern in uh, Texas, and we were looking at Mid-America in Memphis. So we had uh, a weekend set up to go to, uh, to Texas, down to Dallas, uh, to, to visit Southwestern uh, Theological Seminary, and we were going to Memphis. So when we went to Mid-America first, we go into the office of Duffy Guyton, who God used in a mighty way to speak into our lives about seminary. But we go in his office, and Duffy was a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals back in the day. And in Duffy's office is a bat that was used by Ozzie Smith. Right? So Tiffany was, he was telling the story, and I found out later he used it against me. He was telling the story about him being a pitcher and being friends with Ozzie Smith and how amazing. And he said, oh, by the way, that bat in the corner is Ozzie Smith. And Tiffany's like, can I hold it? And he's like, sure, you can even swing it. So she picks the bat up and swings it. And it was no more about seminary. Now it's about Ozzie Smith and the Cardinals. So we leave, and I'm like, what do you think? She said, God is saying, this is where you need to go. We don't even got it. Just call and cancel the meeting with Southwestern. We're, we're going to Mid-America. Her perspective. I, I let her give insight, and it was the right decision. I don't know if it's because we based it on Ozzie Smith, but we did pray and felt like that's where God was calling us. So allow your wife to speak into your life. Insight and wisdom. Man, it, it's important uh, as, you, as you walk in this together. But also to the wife, give freedom to the husband as he follows God. There's also been times in our marriage where God was calling us to do something and we were not on the same page as far as understanding exactly how all of it was working out. And she would come to me and go, I trust you because I trust you're following God. So if he's following God, and even if it doesn't make sense to you, trust him as he leads because that is what God has called him um, to do. And I think Genesis 2.18 lays it out just about as plain as it can be laid out, again, because it's Scripture. And I want to read it because I think it's important. Uh, Genesis 2.18, And the Lord God said, not man, uh, it is not good that a man should be alone. And I love the New King James Version. I will make him a helper, helper comparable to him. I think that's important that, that we understand that, that role. So when this is out of order, what you're doing is you're fighting against God and not against the man. You're basically going, God, you really don't know what you're talking about. It boils down to trusting God. Um, and, and just a side note, please don't air your husband's mistakes out on social media or in aisle three at Kroger. Don't get on a lunch date with your best friend and bash your husband. Uh, the Bible says take it to the Lord in prayer. Uh, and I would go there first. Uh, because I could tell you, man, I, I've heard people bash them, and it is not a good thing. It is not only uh, bad on him, but it is dishonoring God. And so very clearly, uh, take it to the Lord in prayer. When there's a temptation to complain, and there should be and will be, I know, uh, remember that we are to imitate Christ and how he uh, walked on earth. And so you have to gaze at Jesus uh, you have to stop looking at what the world says submission is. Uh, you can't listen to the noise of the culture. Um, you just have to let the Word of God take root in your life and richly dwell in you. Uh, I love what Elizabeth Elliot says about uh, a, a Christian wife and submission. A Christian woman, then in submission to God, recognizes the divinely assigned authority of her husband. He didn't earn it. Remember, he received it by appointment. She then sets about lending her full strength to helping him do what he's supposed to do, be what he's supposed to be. She's not always trying to get her way. She's trying to make it easier for him to do his job. She seeks to contribute to his purpose, not to scheme how to accomplish her own. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Why? Because it is fitting to the Lord. I think it's interesting, though, because Paul's instructions to the wife is about her will, but to the men, it's about his heart. Uh, Look what verse 19 says. Wives, you can breathe now. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So say this, headship is not dictatorship, it's loving leadership. Uh, husbands, love your wives, do not be bitter toward them. Um, and I'm going to flip this one, I'm gonna, I want to deal with the bitterness first and then, then the love. Uh, because it's amazing to me that Paul emphasizes a specific sin here uh, when he uses this. And so bitterness is a very strong word in the Greek. Uh, it actually means resentment and or hatred. And there are many sins that can hurt a marriage. I believe bitterness devastates marriages. Uh, Hebrews twelve fifteen even says this about bitterness, that it can spring up, the root of bitterness can spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Uh, bitterness is dangerous because unlike many other sin, it roots, the roots of bitterness run very deep, very wide. Bitterness reproduces itself and attaches it to every other problem. So if there's an issue going on, uh, bitterness attaches itself to it. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't participate enough in the family. Well, bitterness will start setting in. Uh, he has not uh, acknowledged... I don't know as many ways bitterness kind of takes root, and we have to be very careful. Uh, men, when it says don't be bitter toward your wives, this is just a thing that comes up to me. As you read today, uh, statistically, one of the number one causes of divorce in America today is social media. Period. If you go and look at the statistics, it used to be finances. Finances and and social media are running like right neck to neck. Um, And I I think it can be said like this. Um, Men, when your wife spends more time on social media than she does paying attention to you in your eyes, and maybe you want to spend some time with her, and all of a sudden, she's too tired. I'm going to leave that right there. If you're not careful, day after day, that can build up bitterness. And because of that bitterness, it can be, you can become resentful toward her. And it just starts to, starts to grow. And before I was in ministry, I was in landscaping. I uh, did lawn maintenance mostly. Uh, dealt with a lot of chemicals, weeds, maintenance, did some design build. Uh, but I remember one of the, the most difficult weeds in all of the la- landscape around here is this terrible weed called nutgrass. Mike Mike knows all about it. <laughs> it's called nuts edge. We call it nutgrass. And I was thinking about it because I remember going and taking a class on it uh, years ago to learn how to, to handle it and how to eradicate it. And as I was thinking this week, nutgrass and bitterness kind of run parallel. So just listen. Um, the root runs deep and wide in nutgrass, and the root has these little bulbs that are running, and those bulbs will sprout up. And the more you aggravate nutgrass, it stimulates it and it reproduces. So whenever it's in your flower bed and in your yard and you go and pull it up, it actually makes it grow more. And one of the craziest things to me that I remember is it can lay dormant for years. Uh, It can. It is very uh, devastating. It's extremely difficult to eradicate. There are chemicals that will do it. They're very expensive uh, to use. And if you mow your yard and you have nutgrass in it, if you pay attention, it grows at about twice the speed as your regular grass. So you can mow it, and all of a sudden, two or three days later, you're like, man, it's way up again. And that's how it, it grows. And for me, I got to thinking about that. I said, it's just the way bitterness works. Bitterness is reproduced in the deep parts of the heart, and the more it's aggravated, the more it reproduces. And sometimes you can think, man, I've taken care of it, but then something will happen in your life, in your marriage, or whatever, and it'll sprout right back up. And the thing about it is, is it is costly 
to eradicate it, and it has devastating results in marriage. But the reason I flipped is because I believe the answer to bitterness is the first part of the passage. Husband, love your wives. So if you want to eradicate bitterness today, men, you've got to love her. And you go, well, I do love her. I told her that whenever we got married. But listen, it's not the kind of love that can be measured. It is a Calvary love. That's a different kind of love. Calvary love is way different. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we'll be like, yeah, and then it goes, and gave himself for it. That kind of love cannot be measured because that kind of love goes wherever it needs to go in order to prove the love that you have. I mean, Jesus died on a cross so that his love could be shed abroad in our hearts so that you and I could be saved. And so it's a sacrificing love. It's a cultivating love. It's a building kind of love. It's a drawing kind of love. It's not just a love that's like, well, if she's mad at me, I'm going to take her out to eat at the best restaurant in Memphis, and we're going to go shopping, and she's going to be happy for a little while. You come home, the next thing you know, bitterness flies back up, and you're doing it. It's costly. Love. Man, that Calvary love is so amazing. Why? It's the only love that will eradicate bitterness. Because the Bible says that love will cover a multitude of sin. So if this thing is flaring up in you, what do you do? You love her, right? You love one another. And this kind of love is the love that suffers long. A love that is kind, a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A love that doesn't fail according to 1 Corinthians 13. Love your wife enough to point her to Jesus. Love your wife enough to prepare her for the day that she, she sees Jesus. And when you love with that kind of love, I promise you the pettiness and even the bitterness will be eradicated. Because what can trump Love. Nothing. So husbands, love your wives <laughs> and do not be bitter toward them. It's quiet. I'm off of you men and women. We're going to play it mess with the kids now. But I do believe this, that when moms, are, moms and dads are living out the design that God, the architect of marriage, has laid out, when... We are submitting and loving the way that the Bible says. I believe that it's an example not only to the world, but also our children. And it teaches them about respect and authority. It teaches them how to love. It teaches them how to be productive. All of those things when mom and dad are in their right place in the home. So the next thing he says is, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord you got to think about it. The normal result for marriage is children, right? What did he tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and what? Multiply. Uh, we took the Bible literal in our home, and we filled up that arrow, what's it called? Wow, it just left me quiver. Uh, sorry. Man, but there's a responsibility behind that. To, to live it out in, in front of them. And if we have not always done it right, I promise you. But we continue to try to point to Jesus. And so, in our culture today, we have the idea of children's rights. And I don't disagree with children's rights, but the way the culture is spinning it is completely wrong. It's not a biblical right. It's that I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. And it's kind of crazy. Just a couple of examples. Take a 12-year-old boy. He can't obtain a driver's license yet. He can't vote. He can't own a gun. But he can go to the school nurse and get a bag of condoms. If he can't vote, and he can't have a driver's license, and he can't own a gun, he don't need to be reproducing. Right? I know some of y'all are blushing. Let's just, that's truth. Uh... Take a 13-year-old girl. She's not allowed to buy over-the-counter cough medicine, but she can go to the school nurse and get birth control because it's her right. Well, 
I don't disagree with the rights thing, but I, I, I believe it this way. I believe that they have a right to be born. I believe that they have a right to be raised in a Christian home who loves them and nourishes them and is pointing them to Jesus and is sharing the gospel with them and that the parents are living it out every day. And I, that's the rights that they have. Uh, and so they spin it all wrong. And what they should see is all of what God is saying in the Scriptures to be modeled in front of them. They have rights, but they also have responsibilities. Children, <laughs> obey your parents, and all things. And so who is he talking to here? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to these Christian homes, and he's going, Hey, Mom, submit to your husband. Husband, love your wife. And when you're doing those two things in the homes, children, obey your parents in all things. It has been said that a child who does not learn to obey his or her parents will ultimately grow up and object authority. And rebellion in the home, if unchecked, leads to defiance of authority in the future. So I just say this, Mom, it's okay to say no. Right? Dad, it's okay for some healthy discipline. And if you're in the room in here today and you're a child, you are not being mistreated in either one of those currents. If you're told no, it's good for you. I didn't like it. I hated it when my dad told me no. But I wasn't going to buck up on him too hard because the discipline was close to follow. So when he said no, I was like, I don't like it, but yes, sir. Um, and, and I will tell you today, I'll say this loud and proud, I still think it's okay for them to get a healthy whipping. I just do. Paul says this. And I remember my dad pointing this out to me when I was younger in those moments of being disrespectful. Ephesians 6 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. I'm like, man, I do want to live a long time. I'm not trying to shorten that in any kind of way. So, yes, sir, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. And uh, because I, I kind of want to hang out here a little while. And so children, obey your parents. It's obedient children. But listen, parents, there's another part for us. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And the word provoke is the word to stir, to stir up. And it literally leads back to resentment and bitterness. And I don't know about you, but it's heartbreaking, man, to see a child that is broken in spirit because of their parents. And if you are, have ever been a part of any kind of student ministry or a teacher or an administrator at school, you understand a coach, you understand what I'm saying when, you, when you're talking about a child being broken in spirit. Um, it is heartbreaking. And I would say that one of the number one causes of children today being broken in spirit is time spent. We are the busiest generation that has ever walked the face of the planet. Have you ever stood over ants and like watched them and they're going everywhere just 90 to nothing and you almost get tired watching ants move? I believe if you were to document and take a bird's eye view of what our lives look like, we probably look like a bunch of ants running all over the place, never stopping, on the go all the time, never checking up. And what happens in that is most of the time the children become the collateral damage from that. Time is what builds respect and relationships. I remember when our boys were younger, uh, this is before we had the girls, I think Emma was a baby. Uh, whenever I was in landscaping, uh, the Lord blessed us that, to, to start a, a company. And man, I worked all the time. I would leave in the morning before they woke up, and most nights I wouldn't get home to 9 o'clock. We took trips. Our kids had stuff. Man, we thought we had things going our way. But today you can sit down with our 26-year-old son, Hayden, and ask him what he remembers about those days. And he will be very quickly to tell you, it's not the trips that we took, 
It's not the expensive baseball bats we could buy. It's not the clothes that they wore. He says, Dad, what I remember the most is how many nights I sit down at the table with Mom and my brothers and sister and you not being there. I remember looking up at practices and you not being there. I remember coming home and wanting to play in the yard and you not getting home till after dark. That's what he remembers. And I thought I had life by the tail. I thought I was killing it. But you know what? When I went to seminary and we were broke, we spent a lot of time at home. We played, we played home run derby in the yard five out of seven nights a week. And you want to ask my children what's the best time of their life, they'll tell you that it was in those moments. Why? Because we were spending time together as a family. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. Uh, we can spend our entire lives doing what we think is right for them, but two things, if we're not spending time with them and we're not pointing them to Jesus, and I'll tell you, we're failing as parents. And I think another thing, too, is understanding that our children have feelings, they have thoughts, they have desires, they have hopes, and they do have faults. Be a mom and a dad and not a dictator. Don't just say no. Live life with them. And here's another thing. Parents, does your children have the right to speak into your life? without you being offended. Because I can tell you right now, my daughters, now that they're the ones that under the roof, if dad is not doing what dad needs to be doing, they don't mind telling me. And they don't do it in a haughty way. They do it and it's like, dad, you know what, A, B, or C. And I think because of the time spent, there's been a mutual respect where if I'm getting off track as a parent, they have a right to speak that into my life, and I take it in consideration. And if they're being, if they're being neglected because I'm too busy or whatever, or even just sometimes sitting at home, I, I like to watch you know, certain things on TV, or sometimes I'll go to turn on the TV, and they're like, turn it off. We're going to sit down, and we're just going to talk as a family tonight. And when you got four of them looking at you, you're like, okay. <laughs> Basketball can wait. March Madness will come around again. It's not a big deal. But do they have that right? I just want to say this right here. The word discourage here literally means to lose heart. And I think parenting, a listening ear and a loving heart go together. But discourage broken-spirited children are the prey for Satan. If they're not getting it at home, he's got a really close counterfeit that they'll fall for. One of the reasons you can read about it, you can do the statistics, one of the reasons that gangs are so, uh, that youth are so drawn to gangs is because they have a place to belong. Most of the time, there's an absent father and they just need to know that they're cared about, so they go to these gangs. It's a really close counterfeit to family. And they fall for it because they're broken-spirited. Uh, when they are discouraged and they're broken, the voices that they hear is, I'll never get it right, I'll never be good enough, I'll never be loved. And your authority in their lives should never outweigh your love in their life. That love should be what permeates your relationship. And then he talks about the God-honoring citizen. Uh, the bondservant was expected to give their very best for their masters. And this was a big deal. Uh, it is saying, basically, that you should be working as hard when they're not looking as when they are looking. Um, why? Because the Lord's eyes upon us. If we're believers, it doesn't matter if your boss is not around. God is around. And God is watching how you conduct yourselves when nobody else is watching. And so we are motivated to give our best because of who we represent. Right? I mean, I got to thinking about this verse, and whatever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I've always thought about that verse as going, hey, man, I'm going to do everything I can because uh, I want to give God the glory. And this week when I was studying this, I'm like, no, that is a part of it. But the reason I should do everything I do in the name of the Lord Jesus is because when nobody else is watching, He is. And so I should do it as if He is standing right in front of me. 
I remember one summer between my junior and senior year, my dad worked at a chemical company and pastored bivocationally at the time. And he got me a job working in the warehouse down there, taking 50-pound bags off of a conveyor belt, stacking them on a pallet, wrapping them up, and just doing that continually for, for 10 or 11 hours. And I just remember my dad telling me my first day on the job, he said, son, I want you to remember who got you this job and who you represent. How you work and how you respond to your boss reflects on me. And I was like, yes, sir. Uh, and so what did I do? I did that job. I hated it, right? Every moment of it. But I did it because of my dad. And I did it because I didn't want to do anything that would hinder or put a mark on his name. So I think that's the same way we have to do this when it comes to serving the Lord. And there's going to be times you're overlooked. There's going to be times you feel mistreated. There's going to be times when you should have got the promotion, but somebody lazy got it. There's going to be times when you didn't get the raise that you thought you should have gotten. Listen, don't lose heart because what you're doing is working to glorify the name of Jesus. And it says that He is the one who will reward you. And your reward may not even be seen here. But wow, what an awesome thing to think that it could be waiting in heaven for you. And then to think about it, put it in perspective, Paul is talking to slaves here. I mean, that's preposterous to me. You're like, hey, you're a slave and do everything that you do. <laughs> I mean, you better do it right, do it lovingly, do it happy, because why? It's about Jesus. And so those verses wrap up the Christian example. This is how we should live. And then he moves on to the Christian life. Look in verse 2 of vote 4. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. I think one of the greatest moments at Calvary, outside of it, it being about our salvation, is when the Bible says that the veil was torn. Because what happened when the veil was torn? It gave us, who were once outsiders who could not go into the presence of God, it gave us the ability to walk in to the presence of the Lord Almighty. Um, and I just think of it this way. It means we can come whenever we like, we can stay as long as we like. We can talk about whatever we like. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, where you are from. The ground is level, as they say, at the foot of the cross. So you can walk right into the presence of God and just sit as long as you want and talk to Him. And if anyone understand that, it was the first century believers. If you read the book of Acts, you can't help but see they prayed for leaders they pray for boldness. They pray for the gospel to be spread. They pray for Peter to be released from prison. They prayed for church planning, and they prayed while they were in prison. Everything that they did in the book of Acts was covered by prayer and thanksgiving. And I love what Max Licato says, and I can, can, can definitely uh, understand this. Our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. Have you ever went into the presence of God? Like, oh, I don't, I don't know what to say. That's why the, the story of the publican, the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee trying to be high and mighty, and old publican just hits his chest and says, It's me again, Lord. I don't have anything to say, really. You know me. I'm just thankful that that's the way we get to go uh, to God. And I believe what Paul is saying here when he says continue earnestly in prayer is that prayer shouldn't be on an emergency level. It should be on a personal level. That we don't run to God just when things are not good. We stay in the presence of God at all times. That it is a moment by moment fellowship with the Lord. That our life is just one big praise and worship service. A.W. Tozer sums it up by saying prayer at its best, is the expression of the total life. So pray without ceasing. Pray with boldness. Pray with humility. Pray with confidence. Pray with fervor. And pray with expectations. And instead of prayer being the least that we do, let prayer be the most we do. Have you ever been talking to somebody, and you maybe ask them about praying for you, or maybe they, you, they ask you to pray, and this is the term we say sometimes, well, praying is the least we can do. No, prayer should be the most 
that we do. When somebody calls you and says, man, I'm having an issue, let me pray. Man, I got this bad report from the doctor, let me pray. Why? Because prayer should mark our lives as believers. Uh, the next thing is a life of proclamation. Notice what he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest as ought, I ought to speak. So here Paul is in prison, and he is going, Pray for me that a door would be opened. He's not praying, Oh, please get me out of these chains. He said, as a matter of fact, I'm in the chains because of the gospel, and I just want to be able to preach it, even if it means I stay in chains. He lived his life for the purpose of the gospel. He knew that the gospel was a power of God to salvation, and that it was the only thing that could transform a sinner to a saint. And so Paul didn't want to keep it to himself. He wanted to tell everybody about it. Uh, John Bunyan um, was arrested for preaching the gospel. And he was told that if he would stop preaching the gospel, that he would be released. Here was his response. If I am out of prison today, I will preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. Knowing that he was going to go back to prison. Um, and tortured for Christ. And I will tell you in here today, if you... Uh, love to read and you're a believer, one of the books you need to put on your list to read is Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. It is the guy who started Voice of the Martyrs and his account of being in prison under communist rule is, is, is just amazing. But this is what he says in the book. It was forbidden to preach to the prisoners if you were caught, you were beaten. We decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. We preached, they beat. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. And he gives these accounts where they would be in the middle of a passage of Scripture. Their time would be up. The guards would come in, drag them to the beating room, beat them, drag them back into the prison with blood flowing off of their body. They would look at the prisoners and say, where did I leave off? And they'd start preaching again. Why? Because they knew that if one person heard the gospel and their life was changed, it was worth them being in prison and beaten for. The gospel. Proclaiming the gospel doesn't mean you have to be a superstar Christian or a great communicator. Hit me this week. Just find where you love Jesus and where you love people and let the gospel intersect right there. That's all you have to do. Lost people are amazed. In the book, uh, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, he says this, Lost people are more amazed at our silence than offended by our message. We have bought a lie in America that people don't want to hear the gospel. Listen, as many times as I've shared the gospel in just a general everyday setting, I have never been told to shut up and to leave. Now, sometimes they'll say, I don't have time. But most of the time, if you come at them with humility, they'll listen. But we've bought the lie that we are offending everybody. Well, I would rather offend them on this side of heaven than for them to die and go to hell. The gist of it is this. God the Father saves. God the Holy Spirit convicts. God the Son died and was raised for our salvation. We open our mouths and talk about it, and we live our lives and reflect it. It's that simple. And then the last thing is a life of proof. Notice what he says. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Our lives should reflect our lips. When he uses the term walk, it is speaking of our conduct. And here's the truth. We are watched with critical eyes. And how we live can jeopardize our witness. Redeeming the time is an intentional, urgent, seizing every moment that God has given us to share the gospel. But our speech must match our stride. If I say it, my walk are to prove it. Um, and both my walk and my uh, talk should be seasoned with salt. 
And how we act in public as believers should never put into question the transforming power of the gospel. So when our character and our conduct and our conversation work together, it's a powerful display of the Christian life. So in closing today, go back to the first thing I read, that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are God's special people, meaning we are set apart. So the way we treat one another, wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children obeying your parents, parents encouraging your, your kid, your children, citizens acting like God saved citizens, the way we pray, the way we share, and the way we live should scream to the outside world that we are set apart, that we belong to Jesus. Christianity is a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing, missionary faith. And we need to be reminded of this. Because it is easy for us to come in here on Sunday mornings and get focused on the inward part of Christianity and not the outward part of Christianity. It's easy to come in here and feel good. It's easy to come in here and sing a song. But what about outside? Do we think about all the people that are dying without Jesus and literally going to a place called hell where they will spend the rest of eternity in utter torment with no hope to ever be saved, separated from Jesus Christ? While we, as believers, are enjoying all the great things about heaven, being in the presence. Do we ever think about... These are people that drive up and down this road. These are people that we go and see on a weekly, daily basis at times. These are our family members. These are our friends. Are these the people that we care about? If that's the case, are we living out what God is telling us to do as believers? Here's the thing. We are His children, the sheep of His pasture. He is our God. He is holy. Therefore, we should be holy, set apart from the world, and set apart to Christ. We should look, smell, sound, and act like His kingdom. And all the things I just told you, it should reflect and define who we are as believers. And I just want to say this today. Wives, if you're struggling with biblically submitting to your husband, you need to come. And you need to bow before an almighty God. And you need to repent and confess that. Husbands, if, you're not, if you don't have the Calvary kind of love for your wife, and you're not willing to give your life for her, I'm not talking about just dying. I'm talking about living for her. And you don't love her with that magnitude, you know what you need to do? You need to come today. And if you have bitterness towards your wife before it destroys your marriage, you need to bow before an almighty God and say, Lord, forgive me. Children, if you're disrespectful and rebellious against your parents, you need to take Ephesians 6-1 serious. If you want to live long on earth, you need to come and you need to pray and you need to go, God, forgive me. Parents, if you don't spend time with your children because you're too busy trying to provide uh, material things that will burn up instead of eternal things that will be around forever. If you're not spending time with them and pointing them to Jesus today as parents, you need to come. And you need to ask God to forgive you and say, God, I'm sorry that I have not stewarded your children in the right direction. And if you're in here today as a God-honoring citizen, whether you're an employee, whether you are a, an employer, and you have not been treating each other right as it is fitting unto the Lord, you haven't been giving your all. You've been a source of complaining. You've been going to your co-workers and telling them how bad you can't stand your boss and your job. You know what you need to do today? You need to come to the altar. You need to get before God. You go, I'm sorry, God. God, just thank you that I have a way to provide for my family. And today, if our lives are not defined and marked by prayer and by proclamation and by proof, then today as a church, we need to bow before God. And we need to say, God, help us strengthen us, Lord, that we may live a set-apart life for your glory. And today
today if none of this makes sense and you're like I'm just lost (laughs) Jesus saves and he wants to save you today so I'm just going to invite you to come whatever the need is all across this room God has laid it out in his word how we should look and live and if we're not then we need to ask God to help us so as we pray and we get ready for invitation I'm just simply saying God where am I at what does my life reflect the, the biblical wife the biblical husband the biblical child the biblical parent the biblical employee the biblical employer God do I pray do I proclaim do I live it God show me God speaks to you today, you come. Father, we come to you today, and God, we just turn this over to you. It is yours. God, I know that, Lord, we all can fall short. There are days that I don't love like I should love my wife. Lord, there are days where I'm not the great parent. Lord, there are times where I complain. There's times I don't pray like I should. There's times I've missed opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Lord, there are days where I don't look and smell and act and talk like you. What I love is you're always here with arms open wide, ready to receive and forgive. So God, today in this room, Lord, I pray that you God, we'll just respond. God, we're going to give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. 